Good morning, good morning. Uh, sometimes it's uh, imperative, it's critical, it's urgent that we look into things before we jump into, jump into any conclusions, before we take any action, and I heard a story recently I want to share with you because it kind of illustrates that point. Uh, there was a handyman who was going door to door in the city of Newport Beach trying to find some work, and uh, finally found a house that was receptive to it, knocked on the door, asked if there was something that he could do, earn a couple extra bucks, and the homeowner said, yeah, that'd be great. In fact, it's been something I've been trying to get to, haven't had time to do it. But there's some paint in my garage. If you go out in the garage, grab some paint and go around and paint the back porch. And um, so the guy goes in the garage, he goes out and does it. And a couple hours later, comes knocking on the door, says, hey, I'm done. I've got everything finished. And uh, the guy said, well, how's 50 bucks sound? He said, oh, 50 bucks, that'd be great. Thank you very much. Thanks for the opportunity to do some work. And as he was turning away, he said, oh, by the way, sir, the handyman says to the homeowner, I just want to let you know that that wasn't a Porsche. It was a Ferrari. <laughs> and... Uh, so just, you know, sometimes you just, you know, it's a communication thing, you know what I mean? Uh, anyway, you got to check into some things every now and then, and that certainly is true of our topic for today. Glenn Chambers sat in the airline terminal. He was waiting for the uh, boarding announcement to begin an Avianca airline flight that was bound for Quito, Ecuador. And as he waited, he noticed a piece of paper that was lying on the ground that was one word advertisement, and the advertisement simply said the word why across the front of it. As he reached down to pick it up, he wanted to jot a couple of things down to his mother. He used that as a, as a note to do it, and he wrote some things on there. And before he got aboard the plane, he had uh, dropped it in the mail. Well, he was on his way to work for what was called the uh, Voice of the Andes, which was a radio program that was dedicated to get the gospel out to South America. And as he got on this DC-4, as it approached, it, it, um, as it was, it was actually going to go to Quito, uh, it hit a peak called El Tablazo, which was a 14,000-foot mountain, 14, mountain peak. And the DC-4, in a fiery moment, ended the dreams of this young man who was going to go work in the mission field. And it had been a couple of almost three weeks since he sat in that airline terminal and he jotted that note down to his mother, and his mother received this letter from her son. And as she opened the letter, she noticed the one word that kind of blazed out across the face of the paper. And there was the word why. And he had used that and wrote some other things down that he wanted to, to share with her. But that word why is a word that's a, an interesting word. It certainly is one that we need to check into as we consider the facts and we consider some of the things that we go through in life. And particularly the, the word why as it has to do with why would God allow someone who's going to do God's work to die in such a tragic death. It really comes down to the issue of why does God allow us to suffer when we do the right thing? And that's a tough question. But there's also some interesting insights that we're going to discover as we turn in our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3 once again. And we learn and discover that, you know what, there really is hope beyond fear, and that's the fear of suffering. The fear of suffering for doing the right thing. And as we go through this, as, as uh, you may recall, last time we were together, we re realized that there are many different reasons that we suffer. The Bible is filled with different reasons for suffering. We learned that there's a judgmental suffering that occurs when we do the wrong thing, and it's the consequences of our actions. And for example, in Psalm 51, King David wrote of his suffering that was a direct result of his judgment by God for his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba and for the murder of her husband. And he suffered because of that. There are times where we will suffer when others suffer. 
and um, we, we were made aware of that this past week. We were in a Bible study that, that we're involved in, and, uh, and one of the gals had just come from the hospital and had to go back for a CAT scan, and they had found a spot in her lung, and it was a result of um, a follow-up of radiation treatment that she had for cancer of her thyroid. And as she walked in the room and shared that, there was an emphatic suffering that took place where people would, would cry with her because of what she was going through. And uh, we've all been there, and, and we know how that is. Um, there's preventive suffering. You know, the kind of thing where you put your, sto- your finger on a hot stove and it hurts, you learn that you probably don't want to do that again. And so that, there, there's, there's some value to that. But the type of suffering that I want to specifically refer to today is the type that's dealt with here in this particular section of 1 Peter chapter 3. And we'll pick it up in verse 13 through 17 and pick up on some of the insights that Peter will give us as to how to respond when we're suffering for doing the right thing. In 1 Peter 3, we read this in verse 13. And and who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and with reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. It says, For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for, what, rather than for doing what is wrong. And in this particular passage, we learn that there are some insights that Peter wants to give us on, on what it means to suffer when we do the right thing and how we're to respond to such suffering. And uh, one of the things that I I noted as we were going through this was, in this particular verse, in verse 14, we'll receive the words, but even if you should suffer, in the the fourth condition that that word is used as far as the word if is concerned, it indicates that, you know what, you may end up suffering for doing the right thing, but it really is a rare moment in our lives. And if you think about how many times you and I have suffered in our life, how many times have we suffered for the sake of righteousness or because we were simply doing the right thing? We're in the right place at the right time, doing the right thing that God wants us to do, and we paid a price because of it. And, and you know, it just if you look at your own life's examples or your own illustrations in life, you'll realize what he's saying is probably accurate. And that is that not many of us have ever been called to suffer for doing the right thing. The majority of our suffering occurs because it's a direct result of judgmental suffering. We've done what is wrong before God, and now we're paying a price. And that's why, as we look at this, it's important to put it in the context of what he's discussing, because otherwise it won't make a whole lot of sense. And the real issue is this. How should I respond in those rare times in my life when I will suffer for doing what's right before God? And that's specifically what he wants to address. And that's why in that first verse he says, hey, you know what? If you are suffering for doing the right thing, consider yourself blessed, because why? You are in very good company. If you consider what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 about the, apostles, I mean about the prophets, how they suffered for the sake of righteousness, you realize, and I realize, that when I suffer for doing the right thing, I am a very rare company of folks throughout the history of the world who have suffered because they did literally what was right before God. And because of that, I can say, hey, you know what? God's right. I'm blessed. This is a blessing from God to be chosen by God to allow me to suffer for the sake of His namesake or for righteousness' sake. So many of us, we feel sorry for ourselves. And that's something that we're going to take a look at as we go through this because I'll guarantee you, if you feel sorry for yourself, you're going to miss what God wants to do through that circumstance. You're going to miss what God's calling you to do 
through that situation. If you feel sorry for yourself and you stick your thumb in your mouth and you're, oh, why me? Then you're going to miss why God's allowing this to happen. And it's important that we don't miss that, as we'll see as we go through this. So as he says, hey, you know what? Peter's response is, hey, consider yourself blessed. Most of the counsel that we'll, we'll hear is, hey, if, if somebody is causing you to suffer for doing the right thing, then get even with them and fight back. They cause you to suffer, kick them in the teeth. You know, an eye for an eye, that's what we want to do. And it's kind of like they insult you, you insult them. They cause you to suffer, you cause them to suffer. And that's the kind of counsel that we get in the world. But that's not what Peter's saying. He's saying, hey, you know what? If you're suffering for doing the right thing, the first thing you need to remember is you're, being, you're blessed by God. You're being chosen by God. Isn't that a comfort? So you're thinking, well, not yet. Well, we're not done. <laughs> Which is good. The second thing is this. Look what he says. He says, don't panic. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. See, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. Then he says, don't be afraid and don't panic. Don't fear. Don't fear what you're about to go through. It's interesting, and it doesn't take a genius or linguistic scholar to recognize the counsel God's giving us here. He's saying, don't be afraid. Now, see, usually my two common responses are exactly what he says not to do. The first thing is, I'm afraid, and the second thing is, I'm worried how it's all going to turn out. And God says, hey, don't be afraid, and don't worry. So, well, how do we put this into practical application? See, the problem that we have here is that fear causes panic. Fear of pain can cause us to compromise. Think about this. Being fearful of pain will cause us not to repeat the behavior that led to the pain. And I don't know how else to say this, but you know what? Sometimes pain is good. Sometimes pain is part of being in the game. Sometimes pain is part of being in the right place at the right time doing the right thing. And in that rare event that you incur pain... That doesn't mean that we change our behavior. Let me give you some illustrations from a world that I'm familiar with, and that is sports. So ladies, I'm sorry. If I could think of something, I would. But I know that some of you will appreciate it and understand it anyway. Let me give you an illustration. Our son plays baseball. We get a call one day from one of the gentlemen who was down at the field at the particular time that this happened. He calls us on the cell phone and says, I think you need to come down here because your son just got hit with baseball. And what happened was, he was playing second base at the time, and he went down, fundamentally sound, went down to get the ball. The ball took a bad hop and hit him right in between the eyes and smacked him right up in the nose here and just knocked him flat. So by the time I got there, it was looking pretty nasty. And, uh, you know, we, so we went to the doctors, they check it out, blah, blah, blah. That's not even the important thing. Here's the really important thing. The important thing is this. What usually happens to a person who gets hit with a baseball like that when it's time for them to go back out and play that position? See, that's the really important thing. And what usually happens to a mom of a son? <laughs> that's even more important. So, but th this is important. What happens is basically this. Tell me if I'm wrong. The first thing that you have to do is to forget about it. Because if you can't forget about it, the next ground ball that comes to you, you are imitating a matador. Oh, hey. Oh, missed that one. And the reason for it is, is because you remember I went down the last time and I did this. The ball came up and did this. It hurt. I'm not going to do this again because I don't want that to happen because that hurt. And so what we do is we want to change our behavior. 
give you another illustration. Guy that's up at the plate. And you got a guy who likes to throw inside. Well, if you don't want to give up too much of the plate, you're going to stand up to the plate because you want to be able to reach the outside corner when he throws an outside low fastball because if you're standing away from the plate, you don't have a prayer to hit that pitch. So a good pitcher knows if I can get the guy off the plate and there's this little battle that takes place on this is my house and the pitcher says, no, that's my house and I'm going to show you it's my house. So he'll pitch inside and he'll brush the guy back. So the guy's thinking, man, that ball hit that catcher's mitt really hard. Poof. Now, if that would have hit me that hard, it would hurt. So he's thinking that. But he's thinking, but you know what? But if I get rung up on an outside low fastball, then I'm, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. So as part of what I'm supposed to be doing is I'm supposed to hit the ball. So I get up there. And you know what happens sometimes? You get hit by a pitch. And that battle takes place. Now, let me give you a good illustration. you got a wide receiver who's running across the middle of a football field. And he's going across, and his job is to what? To catch the ball. And you got a linebacker who's sitting up on the inside, and they just live for the day that a wide receiver, a little guy, probably about, you know, 160, 170 pounds, if he's not like a Jerry Rice, but you live for the day where those little guys come running across the middle. I mean, you know, a guy that's 5'10 and 160 pounds, and you're in the middle, and you're 245, 260 pounds, and this guy's coming running across like this, and he's looking back like this, and you're just standing there like this, and you're waiting for him. He doesn't even see you because he's looking to catch the ball. <laughs> oh, that's so sweet. I used to love it. <laughs> And he goes, and he comes across, and then you just go, boom, and you knock him flat, and he drops the ball. Or even if he catches the ball, the next time he's going in the huddle, and they call that same pass across the middle, he's thinking to himself, man, that hurt the last time I went through there. That guy's an animal. So the next time what he does, he goes running across the middle, and he develops what's called what? Alligator arms. Now, you ever seen alligator's arms? That's what happened to him, see? Because he's coming across the middle, and it's time for him to stretch out and catch the ball. But he remembers the last time he stretched out and caught the ball, he got stretched out. So now he's thinking this. If I want to catch it, I'm going to catch it right here. Because if I catch it right here, if I can get... And you get this little alligator thing going on. They go like it's... Because he knows he's going to get hit, and he wants to catch it, and he wants to get hit all at the same time. And so what happens is many times he can't catch the ball because he can't reach out to get it. Now, there's a spiritual truth behind all this. God loves sports. I just want to let you know. I'm just telling you right now. God loves sports. And, and he, he's got a big screen TV too. Um, but here, here's, the, here's the truth. The truth is this. That if we get hurt, we are tempted to change the behavior that led to the hurt. Now let me give you a, a true illustration. From the... From the All right. What? Oh, you don't need a big screen TV. <laughs> okay. Silly me. Okay. All right. Um, so, so, so I'm, I'm working for this company, and I'm working for a guy who doesn't like Christians all that much. He doesn't like Christians at all. But I'm, but I'm doing a good job, and he's making a lot of money. So he has to kind of put up with it. Although one day, he says to me, as I was having a meeting, some ministry-related thing, and it was a lunch meeting, and I came back, and he said, where were you? And I told him where I was, what, he was, what I was doing. And he said, you know what? Until you see, and I'll clean this up, until you see Jesus Christ's name, on the bottom of your check. 
I'd appreciate you not doing that on your lunchtime. Now I'm thinking, that's interesting. And, uh, and we got a little tension going on here. And, uh, but the problem was that was just a part of everything that was going on because there were a lot of other things that were going on and I was the sounding board for all of these bad decisions and choices that he was making, among which were cheating on his wife, doing cocaine, taking money from the bank, not paying our payables, and using money for his personal use. So this was a constant battle that was going on. Anyway, to make a long story short, as we continue to have these confrontations, one day he walks in and says, blank you, you're fired. Okay? Why? Because I was in the right place, doing the right thing, and I paid a price for it. Now, see, some of you may be in a similar situation, and what, what we're learning from all this is this. What? Don't be afraid of doing what's right. Don't panic, and don't worry how it's all going to turn out. But you trust me, and you do what's the right thing to do. Now, as I look back on that experience, the temptation is this. Well, maybe I just shouldn't have been so vocal. Maybe I shouldn't have done what I did. Maybe if I would have just went along with things, then that wouldn't have happened to me. But you know what? And I wouldn't have been able to live with myself. And I wouldn't have been able to live with myself and my conscience and my relationship with God, who calls us to do the right thing at the right time, in the right place, and in the right way. There was never any disrespect. There was always a respect for his position of authority. There was never challenge of any sort. It was just a matter of, no, that's wrong, and I don't want to be part of that. That's all. And I lost my job. Now, some of us may be in a similar situation, and we're struggling with the fact that, you know what, I don't understand why God would choose to put me in this position and then have me suffer as a result of doing the right thing. I can't believe that that could be what God would want in this situation. But what Peter's here to tell us is that may be exactly what God wants. Because you're right, God never called us to comfort, but he promises to comfort us in our affliction. And there's a huge difference between the two. And as we go through this, we're going to see that, and we're going to run into this and be able to recognize that, you know what, the bottom line is this, you'll never do right, and you'll never go wrong doing the right thing. And we don't have to worry about the outcome of it because we're in God's hands. A good illustration of that is, remember Joseph in Potiphar's house. How does he end up in prison? Because he doesn't have sex with some other guy's wife? But doesn't God say, thou shalt not commit adultery? That's not the right thing to do. You shouldn't have sex with another guy's wife. So what does he say? I can't do that. And because he doesn't do that, he ends up in prison. But you know what? God had a purpose and a plan behind all of that. And instead of him sitting around sucking his thumb and moaning and groaning about how unfair life is, he took advantage of it, looked around and said, okay, God, this is why I'm in prison. I guess you've got something for me to do while I'm here. There's a whole different attitude and a whole different perspective in life when we realize that God is totally in charge. You know what? Sometimes we're afraid. Here's another thing we're afraid of. Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 73. Psalm 73. Now, I don't know if all of you have ever thought of this or if any of you have ever struggled with this, but I'll tell you what, I have. And so as Asaph, as we read this psalm in, in Psalm 73, and look what he says. This is an interesting psalm that has to do with, you know what, sometimes we're afraid and we're worried and we panic and we think that, man, you know what, did I read God right or did I misunderstand Him? You know, is, is there something wrong with this picture? 
In Psalm 73, we read this. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, listen carefully. He says, as for me, my feet came close to stumbling and my steps had almost slipped. Why? He says, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Here's something that that I worry about or that I am fearful of. Maybe I misread God. And that is this. Maybe it's not true that good people will be rewarded and bad people will be punished. Maybe that's not true at all because I look around the construction industry and I see people that are bad people that are out to just ream other people and take advantage of them. I see them file bankruptcy in this company and then come down the street and open up under a new name. And I see them just walk from all of their obligations over here and I see the big houses that they have and I see all the money that they have and the cars that they have and all the things that they have that we don't have because we're doing what's right before God. I see them rewarded from all of this and Asaph said, hey, I saw the same thing in my world and I almost slipped and fell because I was envious of the wicked and the arrogant because I wanted what they had. And I started to question God and worry about, hey, God, are you really going to take care of me because you're not doing as good a job as I could do for myself or if I did it the way they're doing it, I would be better off. So I was afraid that maybe God, you know, didn't reward good and didn't punish evil. That's what he's saying here. He said, for there are no pains in their death and their body is fat. They're living a good, luxurious, sweet life. And I'm not. And they're not in trouble as other men nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace, their garment of violence covers them, their eyes, the eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run right. We need to understand something here. Skin may be in, in our culture, but in that one, fat was where it was at. You got it? And the bottom line was, the heavier you were, the better life that you had. And that's the whole point. If you look at those Renaissance pictures, you always see big, heavy women because that was a life of luxury and that was a life of want and they didn't have any Stairmasters and they didn't have any of that stuff. They wouldn't want one anyway because everybody else, you were either eating and living good or you were out working in the fields and you were producing so people could eat and live good. So that's what he was saying here. And he's saying, you know what? In the imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. And what they're saying was, what he's saying was, you know what? I see these people going around and saying things like this guy said, hey, you know, until you see Jesus' name on your check, hey, then you're going to have to do it this way, man. And he's saying they were arrogant and they were shaking their fist in the face of God saying, hey, you're God. What God? Punish evil? I don't see any punishment going down here for evil. Reward those who are good? Yeah, you're good and look at your life conditions. Nah, I think I'll just stick to this plan. And he says, and how does God know? Oh, does God really know? Typical thing. Well, God knows. We say it all the time. God sees. God knows. You'll one day judgment one day. And their attitude was, yeah, right. God sees. If God sees and God knows, then how am I keep getting away with all this? He says, behold, these are the wicked. And always at ease, they have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. See, it was a waste of time doing the right thing before God. Surely it was in vain. I've done the right thing. I've kept my heart pure. I've washed my hands in innocence, for I've been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I should have betrayed the generation of thy children. When I pondered to understand this, I was troubled. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. He says, when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God and I perceived their end. Until I came before God and said, you know what? 
and I saw the plan of God. I was troubled until I remembered what God had to say. And he says, And surely thou hast set them in slippery places, and they have cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment's time, and they are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakens, O Lord, when aroused, thou wilt despise their form. Our God is a God of loving kindness, and our God is a God of patience. But don't ever forget nor misunderstand that our God is also a just God who sees all the injustice of this world and one day payday, says the Lord. It is appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment. And we need to recognize that. And we need to understand that. And don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever we sow, we're going to reap. One day, judgment day. The Bible speaks over and over about that great day of wrath or the great day of judgment where God will balance all the scales of inequity that have taken place throughout the history of the world. And one day, people will pay for the injustice they've caused in this lifetime. God says, I see that. Don't you ever be envious of evildoers. Don't you ever look at business strategies that are wrong before God and, and don't honor His Word. Don't you ever look at somebody who's taken advantage of another person and say, hey, I could do the same thing. I could just be as well off. Don't you ever forget, if you fear anyone, fear God. For the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. We're so afraid of men that we don't fear God anymore. We're so afraid that God won't take care of us that we've taken matters into our own hands. We're so worried that somehow God doesn't see the good things that we do. God is not unjust as to forget our works of righteousness. He is a rewarder of those who do good. We have to be reminded of that. And it's, and it's encouraging to be reminded of that. And there's hope beyond the fear of God not taking care of us or the fear of suffering for doing the right thing because God does notice that. The saints who were before God in heaven that have been martyred for their faith said, Oh God, how long until you avenge our deaths? And he just said, Hey. He didn't say, Hey, I'm not going to. He said, Just a little while longer. Just a little while longer. But one day, your deaths will be avenged. One day, the scales will be righted. We live in a world and a culture today. You look around and you see evil being rewarded and God's people somehow or another get confused to think that maybe God is wrong. Maybe everything I believe is wrong. Maybe this whole program is wrong. Maybe this book is wrong. No, it's not. Until you come into the sanctuary in the presence of God and you come into His Word and you read what He says, then you realize that, you know what? I almost slipped. I almost fell. I almost did what was wrong. But thank God I came into your presence and I saw what you said is true. And one day, payday, says the Lord. Don't be afraid and don't worry. Don't be afraid and don't worry. Number three, we're to acknowledge Christ as Lord even over this event. Even over this event, this event that seems to make no sense whatsoever, we're to acknowledge Christ as Lord in our hearts even over this event. Back in 1 Peter chapter 3. You know, what's interesting to me is that often we overlook the first part of this verse as we concentrate on the second part, which we'll see in a minute. But I want to take a minute just to fully appreciate what's being said here. Because this verse continues a very important spiritual principle that's found in verse 14. Look what he says in verse 14. He quotes a passage from Isaiah, and it says, And don't fear their intimidation, and don't be troubled. And that quote basically comes down to this. Fear of God, fear of God conquers every other fear that we'll ever have. Fear of God conquers every other fear that we'll ever have. Isn't that interesting? I love that because as we look at this, we need to understand and recognize something. Um, you know, this whole idea of fear, I was thinking, you know, 
what's sad about it is, as we look through all of these things, he's saying fear of God overcomes every other fear. Well, the quote that he's given is from Isaiah. And what happened was King Ahaz uh, had got together and he was trying to get together and form a coalition to have an army that was going to fight against their enemy. And what, when he went to this coalition and he tried to get these, these men to join up with him, they said, no, we're not going to do that. And what happened was he went and tried to form a coalition with the Assyrians who were enemies of God. He said, fine, God's people won't join up with me to fight together. Then I'll go ahead and join up with the enemy because, you know what, we'll be stronger anyway and then we'll fight against you. And so the quote was, what was he saying? He was saying that, you know what, sometimes we're so afraid and take matters in our own hands that we violate God's principles. And God was saying, don't you ever ally yourself with enemies of God? Don't you ever ally yourself by doing what's evil because you're afraid? You do what's right and you trust me and don't worry about the outcome. And you sanctify Christ as Lord of your hearts even in this particular event. You know, I was thinking of this whole idea of fear. Think about this. Fear of losing your friends as a young person causes you to give in to peer pressure. Fear of not being accepted by the group is what causes people to go out and drink and do drugs and do things on the weekends with their friends because they're afraid of doing what's right before God and they may not have any friends. Our counsel to our children has always been the same. You don't want those kind of friends. You don't need those kind of friends. If you're going to fear anything, fear God and do what's right before Him because if you're just trying to please people, they're going to disappoint you in the long run anyway. So why would you fear them? Fear God and do what's right. But think how fear motivates us to compromise in our faith before God. Fear, fear of, you know, I've seen guys who are professional athletes who are to play because the particular coach that they had was a certain way. And so the coach basically was saying, hey, if you want to play for me, then you're going to have to go out and drink with us. You're going to have to go out to the bars with us. You're going to have to go out to the strip joints when we're on the road and places like that because I like tough guys. And if you're afraid of that, then what happens is you have to go along with the program. Because Why? Because I'm afraid that, you know what, I won't get to play. I'm afraid that I won't get to play. And if I don't get to play, I can't make a living. And if I can't make a living, I can't get exposure. If I can't get exposure, I won't, be, I won't have a high market value. I've seen six foot five, 340 pound guys afraid of a coach who doesn't like their Christian lifestyle, but they're good football players. What are we afraid of? Be afraid of God and do what's right before Him. Who cares? Well, what's funny about it was, as I was counseling a couple of guys who had this particular coach and they were trying to figure out, man, what am I going to do? The, the, the hilarious thing happened was, the next day the whole coaching staff got fired. I loved it. It's like, now what's the problem? What's the question? God didn't get fired. He's still on the throne today. And if you're going to fear anyone, fear Him. Because He is still in control. See, but we're afraid. You know, if I was afraid to lose my job, I wouldn't have said anything about all the evil that was taking place in this guy's business. I'll just mind my own business, just collect my check, just, you know, it's not, it's not my business. Yes, it is. In that particular case, it was. Sometimes it's not. But then on the other hand, it's to him that knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it. To him it is sin before God. Sometimes God calls us out to be able to call people and hold people accountable for what they're doing. That's why we have laws in our country, whistleblower laws. Why? Because people are afraid to tell what's really going on in their business unless they're protected by the law that says, hey, you can come and tell us and we'll protect you. Sometimes that protection doesn't work, but it doesn't matter because it's still the right thing to do. Fear motivates us to change our behavior. Fear of confrontation. What do we do? We lie. The check's in the mail. I'll have guys on the job. The job will be finished by a certain date. Hey, why do we say those things? Because we're afraid. Afraid of what? Afraid of telling the truth? Hey, tell the truth. Speak the truth in love. But you know what? God says, thou shalt not lie. Fear. Acknowledge Christ as the Lord of your life. 
I'm afraid to lose my girlfriend. I'm afraid, afraid to lose my boyfriend. So I'm going to compromise in, in a sexual area of my life. Oh, come on. You know what? Don't be afraid of that. Be afraid of doing what's wrong before God. We need to understand that that's all that really matters. How do we avoid all these pitfalls? We fear man. We fear God and not man. And you know how else, what else we do? In this particular situation, as I'm undergoing this particular pressure or pain or stress or whatever it is, he says, sanctify the Lord Jesus Christ in your heart. Take a moment. Set aside a little chapel in your heart that says this, Lord, in this moment of life, when I'm being persecuted for doing what is right, I'm being tempted to do the wrong thing. I'm being tempted to compromise. I'm being tempted to sell out. At this moment in time, I want to set you apart in my heart and I want to make you Lord of this situation in my life. Give me the strength. Give me the courage. Give me the determination to fear only you and not man. Wow. See, we forget this part because we're always jumping to the next part. And the next part is this. Always being prepared to give an answer or an account to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Isn't that great? Being ready to use that platform to tell other people of what? The hope that you have that they don't have. The hope that you have that they don't have. The word to give an answer is the word to give an account or to apologize. It's not to say, I'm sorry for what I'm doing, but it's to give you an answer. And I'm prepared to do that and we're being prepared right now to do that. We're being prepared to give an answer for the hope that was within us. Why? Because it doesn't make sense to be persecuted for doing the right thing. And in fact, I had friends who knew me that still couldn't believe I could get fired from a job for doing the right thing. Why? Because they had never experienced that. And the word on the street was all these other things because I had a, uh, an appointment contract and I had some percentage of stock and stuff that were going to have to be paid out and the only way I could lose my job was for a moral, uh, a moral failure of some sort, you know, lying, cheating, stealing from the company, that type of thing. So the word on the street was, hey, you know what? He was doing something wrong. That's why he got fired because only people doing something wrong get fired. And so that's the word that had to get out there. And I had people who even knew me that would even question and say, gee, you know what, this is weird, but I'm hearing this. They say, well, how long have you known me? You know, I'm going to have to... And you can't even say anything and defend yourself. All you can do is allow your life to speak for itself. Because you can't defend yourself to anyone and everyone. And the people that knew me already knew me. And the people that didn't know me, I didn't really care what they thought anyway. But the bottom line was this. Is that, you know, sometimes you're going to pay the price for doing the right thing. But what's awesome about it is, he says, this is what's going to happen. People are going to want to know why you're handling it the way you're handling it. Why aren't you bitter? Why aren't you angry? Why aren't you trying to get even? Why aren't you doing all these things? I don't understand. What, what is it that, that you have that I don't have when I go through tough times? You have a peace. You have a hope within you that I don't have. And what is that hope? What is the hope? I know who I believe in. I know the why I believe Him. I know whom I believe, and I know that I believe them, and I know why I believe Him, and I know what He has to say about this situation, and I know that that which I've entrusted to Him, I can trust Him against that day of judgment, and you know what? I don't have any problem with that. In fact, let me give you an illustration of it, a quick one, and you can look at it on your own, but turn back to Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26, we're running out of time. 
but it's a great illustration of how to use a situation like this. And it's really difficult at times. We, this, this particular gal I'm thinking of that has cancer, and uh, they were struggling at this Bible study. Gee, why her? She's so nice. She loves the Lord. She's doing all these things right, blah, blah, blah. And, and I'm thinking, hey, you know what? Why you? Because you're the perfect choice. I said, what do you mean? Well, here, let me show you. Look at, look at, look at the Apostle Paul did as he used his opportunity persecuted for righteousness. He didn't do anything wrong, and yet here he was defending himself. Look what it says in Acts 26. And Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. There's the word, to be prepared to make a defense for the hope that was within you, to be prepared to defend yourself, to give your cause, to give your case. He says, in regard to all the things for which I'm accused by the Jews, you know, I consider myself fortunate. (laughs) What's he saying? I consider myself blessed. This is great, they accused me. He says, because I consider myself fortunate that uh, King Agrippa, that I'm about to make my defense before you. He says, especially because you're an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So then all the Jews know my manner of life from, from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and in Jerusalem. Since they have known about me for a long time previously, if they're willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion... And now I'm standing before you today, I'm standing on trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O God, O King, I am accused by the Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God raises the dead? So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I look... Not only to lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but I also, when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. It says, and as I punished them often in the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to the, in the foreign cities. What's he saying? I tried to get them to deny their faith. I tried to get them to blame God for their suffering. And they wouldn't do it. They had this hope in God and it drove me crazy and I was furious with them because they didn't insult me when I insulted them. And they didn't cast, you know, they didn't try to get even with me and everything I tried to do to push their button, I couldn't push their button. There was something different in their life and it drove me crazy. It says, while I was thus engaged, I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. And at midday, O king, I saw in a way a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. But arise and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. You see what he's saying? 
I have called you, appointed you for this purpose. You have been forgiven of your sins as you have fallen before me and you've laid yourself humble before God and you have asked me to forgive your sins and I forgive your sins and now I have appointed you and you and you and me and all of us who have tasted that same forgiveness. God has appointed us that we could go into the world and tell people that they can turn and trust in God and look what it says and that they'll turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they would receive forgiveness of their sins and, made an, and given an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. That's why God allows us to be persecuted for doing the right thing so that we have access to people that we would never have access to. And he is standing before Agrippa that day saying, hey, I don't question why God's done this in my life because I know why He's done it. He's called me for this very purpose that I would have access to people that I would never have access to if it wasn't for the fact that I'm on trial here today. Joseph, sitting in prison, was able to share with those around him. The Apostle Paul in prison said this, You know what? I've got, the whole, I've got the whole guard, the praetorian guard, shackled to me every day that I can tell them about how much God loves them and that they need to turn to Jesus Christ or they're going to suffer and die for their sins and they're going to go to hell. And I've got them shackled to me every day. He didn't sit around going, Oh, why am I in prison? Oh, why is this happening to me? He's sitting there going, Hey, next! Who's next? Next? Oh, good. You're next? Good. Let me tell you about God's love for you, even though yet you are still a sinner and you're far from Him. Even though you're on your way to hell, and it's pretty obvious by how you conduct your life, but God still loves you anyway, and He's allowed me in this situation in our life together to tell you how much God loves you and how much He wants to forgive you if you just turn to Him. It says, but consequently, King Agrippa, I didn't prove disobedient to this heavenly vision. I kept declaring both to those of Damascus first, also at Jerusalem, and then throughout all the region of Judea, and even to Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Isn't that interesting? That when we repent and we turn to God, a true repentance and a true acceptance of Jesus Christ will change the way we live our lives. Let me just make something perfectly clear. We're hearing a lot about shallow conversion experiences. We're seeing big groups of people going to big groups at stadiums and big groups going to here and there and everywhere else. And we're seeing emotional decisions of people going to the front and making claims that, oh, that was the day that I accepted Jesus Christ or whatever. Let me just tell you something. That if you confess and agree with God that you're a sinner before God, and you believe the only way that you'll ever get into the presence of God is by the death of Jesus Christ, and you say, God, forgive me for I am a sinner... I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins and I want to accept Him into my life today. If you are sincere, God, His Holy Spirit, will regenerate your life and you will be born again of God. And then you know what will happen if it's true of your life? You will start to live a life that's pleasing to God. There will be deeds that are born out of repentance. When I hear people say, oh yeah, I, I accepted Christ or I prayed that prayer or whatever and they still live like hell, let me tell you something. You can say a prayer a million times. If you don't mean it and you're not sincere and God doesn't cause you to be born again in your heart, then you know what? All you are is confusing yourself. And that's why you're getting frustrated and angry with the people around you who keep sitting back waiting for some change to happen. It's supposed to happen. There better be changes. Deeds done appropriate to repentance. And for this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and they tried to put me to death. Why? Because they saw my life had changed. I hated these people of God. Now I love these people of God. I was down on everything that they said. Now I'm up on Jesus. I'm telling everybody that what they're saying about Jesus is right. And they looked at me and said, Hey, we got to kill him now. And so having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and to great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place. 
that Jesus Christ was to suffer and that by the reason of his resurrection from the dead he should be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. And while Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. For the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice. For this has not been done in some corner. King Agrippa, don't you believe the prophets? I know that you do. And Agrippa replied to Paul, and I love this, Paul, in a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that whether in a short or a long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. And this is what he said. And the king arose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had drawn aside, they began talking to one another, saying, this man is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man would have been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. But if you remember anything about the Apostle Paul, he wanted to go to Rome. He wanted to tell people about Jesus Christ. And Rome was the happening spot. And they would have let him go. Then he would have had to figure out some other way to get to Rome. And because he, did, he appealed, I want to speak before Caesar. I want to be on trial before the world. I want to proclaim Jesus to everybody who will listen to me. Why? Because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God and the salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I don't have anything to be ashamed of. And see, what happens is, when we're persecuted for doing the right thing, if we sit around and we suck our thumbs and we feel sorry for ourselves, we're missing the greatest opportunity God can give us. And that is, we have access to people now who want to know what this hope is that you have when you are being persecuted, that you are a total peace, you're not afraid, you're not worried, you're not taking things in your own hand, you're just sitting back peacefully, waiting for them, and you know what, and, and then, I don't know, I read in the Bible, it cracks me up, because like the Philippian jailer says to Paul, what must we do to be saved? Let me just tell you something. I have never, ever had a friend, relative, person in business, anybody I know, ever come to me one day and say, Chuck, I'd really like to know. What must I do to be saved? I've never had that happen. But you know what I have? I had happened whenever I got fired for doing the right thing. I had all kind of people that wanted to hear what I had to say. Isn't that true? And that's great. So right now, if you really believe all this, you're going to be praying, Lord, let me be chosen so that I can feel that same blessing. So that I can feel uniquely called by God, put me in a situation where I'm going to suffer for the sake of righteousness because I want the opportunity that Paul had and that everybody else has ever had that's ever suffered that way to be able to share with people who up to this point won't listen to me anyway. This gal is awesome. We're in his Bible study. This gal has cancer. And they're struggling with, well, what are we going to do? And the council as we went through this passage together, was simple. It's this. Use it as a platform to tell people about the hope that is within you with gentleness and with reverence because they want to know how are you handling this? How can you have such a hope and a peace about you? You've got two small children. Your husband's got a great career. Everything's going so great for you. And then this. They look at it as bad. God looks at it as what? Another opportunity. Another great opportunity for God to use us to tell others about Jesus Christ. And this is what it says. Keep a good conscience, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ might be ashamed. And the last thing is this. Look at verse, oh, back to 1 Peter 3. Look at verse 17, we'll close. 
let us get this straight once and for all. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for, what, for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Can we please get this straight? I am so sick of hearing if God's people are suffering, they have some lack of faith. I'm so sick of hearing that God doesn't want us to suffer. God called us to suffer and to use our suffering as a platform to tell people about the hope that we have that they don't have when they're suffering. This is more than just about this life. This is about forever and ever, eternity, amen. This is about using every opportunity in this life, which is brief and passing, to allow people to make a decision whether they're going to believe God and accept Jesus Christ or die in their sins and go to hell. That's what this whole life is all about. Don't ever forget that. And if God's wills it so that you're suffering for doing what's right, then suffer and be used by God to help spread that word that God loves people and He doesn't want any to perish, that He wants every one of us to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And you know what? There's no better platform to use than when people think we're getting ripped off and we don't deserve it and they want to know how we're handling it. Isn't that great stuff? And the last thing is this. Stop suffering for doing the wrong thing. You know what I'm saying? That, that's, you know, that's a self-inflicted wound. If you're suffering for doing what's wrong, stop doing the wrong thing. If you're suffering for doing what's right, praise God, you're blessed. Amen. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of it. And God, help us to see situations in life and circumstances through your eyes and not our own. That as you open the door for us to suffer for doing what's right, it's an opportunity, it's a platform to be able to, to tell people about Jesus Christ. And the hope that we have that obviously they don't have. And to do it with gentleness and with reverence, showing respect to the listener, with gentleness that, you know, that they need to understand what's going on and the importance of it. And God, we just praise you for your name, we praise you for your word, and we praise you for the results as we begin to apply them in our life. In Christ's name, amen.